Hello and welcome back to One for Paul, the show where I, the original non-pop culturist, get inducted into the world of pop culture by friends, comedians, and nemeses. Joining me today is my friend, Trevor Parr. Trevor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Paul. Glad to be here. So you had me watch a thing. I did. You had me watch a thing for January. That's the name of this month. What did, what did you have me watch? Well, even though it is January, or however you want to pronounce, to pronounce oh, it's, that. It's pronounced it, January. January, okay. Well, it is Janime-esque, and that is Pacific Rim, which we have Kaiju and Mecha. That's right. Welcome, live action. welcome to Atlantic Brim, the story of a really cool hat from the East Coast. Uh, you know, there is actually a parody movie of Pacific Rim called Atlantic Coast or something like that. Is it really? Yes. Do, do I need to seek this out or is this give it a miss? No, this is like one of those garbage films that has maybe one tenth of the budget and has no intention on being a great movie. So I no. love garbage films. That's great. So, well, I did, yeah. So I got to say for the shows and the, for the listeners sake, I knew very little about this movie going into it. Uh, I saw the posters around, when did this come out? 2013, 2012, something like that? Yeah, around that time period. Yeah, and uh, it was proudly displaying the giant mech battles, which are super down my alley, but for some reason I just never got around to watching it. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I mean, I remember seeing those trailers. I've always been a fan of the director, Guillermo del Toro, and how he does his films with tons of details. And he grew up watching Kaiju. Like, he was a big fan of the original Godzilla films. Like, I grew up watching with my best friend, who's half Japanese. We would, you know, every Saturday morning, it's like Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, all that stuff. And so I saw the first trailer, and I'm like, I am sold on this. This is right up my alley. Giant mechs monsters say no more yeah i mean i definitely am versed on the basic mecha versus gojira premise and nothing else and i was just like giant fighting robots who hey, that's fine great but um yeah i don't know i think i saw it and i went like uh i'll watch that later for some reason so unless you have other stuff uh, about the movie in the front um, well, I mean, I mean, I've got a bunch of notes over independent scenes, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff I quite like about this, like in terms of turn, overall detail, color themes, and all sorts of stuff. I don't have any notes on color theme. That'll be really cool to see. So if we're going to, unless there's anything else in the intro, then fade in to a computer display from 1984, defining some terms for us. Term one, kaiju. It's It means a giant beast. Yes. And a Jaeger, which is German for hunter. Mm-hmm. Then the and voice... And then we have the first scene uh, basically showing the first kaiju in this world that happened, and they wanted to get straight to the point and not a lot of build-up, but like, oh yeah, this thing happened, San Francisco got wrecked. I love that, where it's not like a long build-up. Yeah, seriously, a scene one monster reveal, and then the tanks and jets and missiles took six days to stop it. Uh, one other thing I quite liked... Um, about uh, that intro scene is that almost every alien invasion film, the aliens come from outer space, and this kind of reminds me of War of the Worlds, where the aliens actually come from beneath the ground and 
come up instead of, you know, kind of different paradigm, basically. I like that. Yeah, I haven't seen War of the Worlds. Maybe I should add that to the list. It might already be on the list. Well, I mean, you got all sorts of different versions. Tom Cruise, what, the one that came, like, in the 60s or 50s, and the original radio broadcast. So you're telling me I need to watch all of them? Well, I mean, it's going to be hard to watch the original one because it was a radio broadcast. I mean, you could watch a video of the audio, but... Oh, the original was a radio show. Neat. Yeah, and nothing had been done quite like it. Is that the one that people thought it was real and they went out of their houses going, we're being invaded, actually? Yep, that that is the one. God, imagine trusting the news that much. Yeah, that's fake news. No. (laughs) Well, that one was actually fake news. It was legitimate. That wasn't happening, and they reported it. Yeah. Thank you, Orson Welles. So six months later, and there's more attacks now. It turns out it wasn't just a one-off that they managed to defeat. Uh, also, their blood is toxic, and it's like an oil slick. They call it Kaiju Blue, and I can't help but feel they missed a trick here. Kaijus. You reckon somebody's selling it as, an, as a supplement? Oh, yeah. I mean, just put this kaiju juice, you know, in your tank and whatnot, and you'll get increased maybe 20% miles mm-hmm, per gallon mm-hmm. more in your car. And if you drink Fantastic. it, you'll uh, you'll get male potency for some reason. Well, I think that's more if you have to grind up, like, the cuticles or the nails and then snort it or something, you know, but hey. Yeah, everybody likes own. snorting a good cuticle. Mm-hmm. So the world came together to battle a potentially world-ending threat put aside old rivalries, and began acting together for the greater good. These are the voyages of the Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> I mean, not, <laughs> no, not quite, but I've always These got that the vibe from the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. You're right. Uh, this, as it turns out, though, is the most fictional thing about this film about giant mechs battling giant space Gojiras. Yeah, and throughout the movie, even if you see it now, it's like when they came together, there's not actually a lot of, like, national pride. You don't see a lot of flag-waving. A lot of, like, the national, like, stickers and stuff are removed. You only see them in very little points. I guess that's right. Yeah, I didn't like. I didn't make special notice of it. I think there's color themes, like China is red and Russia is um, iron. But otherwise, I, yeah, I think you're quite right. So to, yeah, uh, so to yeah, fight the ahead. monsters, naturally, you need to make some monsters of your own. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you need two people to pilot this giant robot mech thing because you can't, you can't have one person operating a giant robot. You need two people because we're going to use their brains as the interface to the... Com- it's magic. It's magic. You need two people because it makes better drama. Indeed, and then I like the whole drama of you have to get inside each other's head, know their fears, mm. know their strengths and everything, and you know, you are with that person whether you like them or not. At the end of the day you gotta trust them to make this giant killing machine work. Otherwise you're dooming mankind. Yeah, but you know, no pressure, it's fine. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah. Uh turns out, by the way, they win. The Jaegers work super well and they kill all the kaiju and everyone lived happily ever after roll credits. Exactly, and they've got it to the point where it's just like a money-making uh, entrepreneur. I mean, they money-making... Turned it, they uh, turned it yeah. into sneakers. 
yeah, and it's a game show. It's a farce, you know. We have, oh, look at the big scary kaiju. I don't know what we'll do, you know, on the Japanese game show. Yep, they have toys. They do merchandising. And that's probably the most realistic thing about this because somebody is going to look at a world-ending disaster and be like, well, sure, but I can make some money here. Yeah, in a world where we uh, people eat Tide Pods, uh, laundry detergent, basically, as a viral challenge, and try and take selfies with trains that are coming towards them while be on the tracks, yes, this is probably hey, most realistic. I didn't hear about that second one, and that seems even dumber than eating the sweet, colorful-looking thing. I'm glad to see a movie with a happy ending anyway. But wait, what's that? Then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. I mean, the kaiju attacked. <laughs> yes, when the category what three, three or whatnot. Three, I think, at this point. See, there's yeah, three. There's, a... there's three categories because we like categories, us humans, and we saw these things and we were like, "Well, what do we do? Do we fight them? No, no, no. Wait, first we need to fi we need to categorize them." Exactly. And there's that nice quote from the protagonist uh, saying how, you know, once you're, you you step in a Jaeger, you can, can you can control the hurricane. And then we're categorizing these as hurricanes. You know, you have one, two, three, four and five. Throughout oh, I the didn't movie, get that. So. You're right. That's a nice parallel. Uh, cut. Mm -hmm. Speaking of protagonists, cut to two brothers who are also kaiju pilots. I mean, Jaeger pilots who fight the kaiju being deployed at 2 a.m. Turns out that these two brothers were never star athletes or head of their class, but could hold their own in a fight. So it turns out that they're drift compatible, and we'll learn what that means in a bit. Also, because they weren't exceptional in any way except for their propensity for violence, uh, we can relate to them because we're also, the audience isn't uh, talented, according to the filmmakers, and they're like, well, we need people to relate to these guys so they can't be good at what they do. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. We need the everyday man team, and basically... Yeah, you know, that everyday man who sucks at what he does. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they've got to be American because, yep, we're pretty much middle <laughs> of the bunch. <laughs> well, these two are just like... You say American. I would say that representationally, this is pretty good because I don't hear a lot of New England accents, even though I hear... American, because there is sort of like that one standard American. And unless the story is set in Wyoming, I don't hear regional accents. You know what I mean? Where it's set in right. Louisiana, frankly, even then they put Brad Pitt in it. Right. And in fact, I think actually the guy, our main protagonist, the actor himself, I think he's German. And oh, is he he's actually? doing it pretty good. So he's a very, uh, oh, I did very not notice, neutral accent. I did not notice any issues with the sort of uh, American, but slightly uh call it uh, is that boston i guess it's not boston rhode island maybe well, i don't know whatever his accent is maybe the actor's american but to me it almost sounded like how like some um, um some western european cultures learn english and there's like no discernible accent or diction like that you would have with like a region and so it kind of stuck out to me Okay, I can see that. There was a twinge to it that I was trying to place early on, and I sort of landed on New England, especially given that his brother's name is Yancey, and I have never heard that name outside of Rhode Island. Well, I hear Yancey. I keep on thinking about Doug. Um, I don't know if you guys had that over there. Do, 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 do. Yeah, that because one? his middle name was Doug Yancey uh, Funny or oh, whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. God, that was a bad show. I watched it again recently. 
it's not a good show. It's fine. I liked it as a kid. It was fine. It's fine as a kid, but yeah. It... <laughs> and now as my discerning taste adult self, I need a movie that has some real moral weight to it in my in between scenes of like giant robots fighting giant monsters. So they suit up into a super awesome looking armor and strap into what be, must be the clunkiest user interface I've ever seen. And I used Windows NT. Oh, duh. Well, yeah, definitely better than Windows Vista. Uh, but then again, that's not saying a lot for Windows Vista. I mean, uh, uh, Windows Vista didn't about... have nearly as many cogs. It definitely had more updates than any other Windows OS out there. Yeah, I mean, heck, from too. starting up, you had 500 updates just to get it working. Yeah, I remember Sheesh. that. I wonder if they have a similar issue here, but they need to like update the the drive shaft or something. Mm. But I also kind of speaking of dry shaft, it, this boot up sequence where they're getting all the pilots strapped in. I liked how detailed they're going into, and it's almost like watching a pit crew mm. at you know at the uh, Formula One circuit. You know, they're changing the tires, getting everything ready with precision. And uh, Del Toro was saying, you know, it's like, hey, whenever we have a repeated action like this, and we're getting suited up, everything you got to show it in meticulous detail and be careful. So that way you would never have to bother showing it again. And it's just assume, okay, this is the whole process of it booting up and everything. And they do a good job of showing each little intricacy. Like like on the suits, little nicks. They show that, you know, this is worn in. It's not perfect. It's not shiny. It's been used constantly. And I like that where it's not just like virtual reality. It's real. I do love how everything looks like it was pulled directly from StarCraft 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like even Just the suiting for up those thing, to show up. right? Yeah, it's it strikes me as that, and of course, StarCraft Two was uh, let, let's say heavily informed by the aesthetic of Warhammer 40k. And every time I see some of the equipment they're using with like paint chipping off of it or whatever, I'm looking at my old 40k models and going, "Hey, that's sort of how I would weather my things too." So, prop department had some fun. And I definitely like the audio cues, too, mm. because now when they're getting ready in that scene where they're suiting up, you hear the first time the main theme of the song, which the composer is Raymond Jawadi, who does Game of Thrones, Westworld. Oh, same guy. Yeah, same guy. And he's also got the guitarist from Rage Against the Machine Audio Slay, Tom Morello, doing that. Oh. I, I just love that song. Nice. Oh, so good. I thought it sounded uh, familiarly uh, sort of crunchy. Yeah, when you listen to the song, like the soundtrack, and it gets into like uh, Tom Morello actually gets to have like a little solo, and whatnot. It's very Rage Against the Machine early '90s, and I love it where he just it's he's improving as much as he wants to. It's fantastic. Yeah, I I like getting guys like that into the studio and just saying like, "Okay, Tom, go. We're just gonna sit here and wait. I'm sure something will work." Mm-hmm. Yeah, ten minutes later, you got a full album or some shit. Uh, so the drift, uh, we now learn, is essentially a Vulcan mind melt, but here used as the control system of a giant bot mech. Mech bot. Mecha, I guess. It's not a robot. There's no... Maybe it's yeah, a robot. Yeah, robot defines like that it has like some sort of autonomy on its own, where mecha is always in control by the pilot. Okay, so a mecha is like, it's a car airplane that walks. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, I think uh, 
Well, because the guy who made the first popular or first mecha who invented the genre in Japan, like in the 60s, he was stuck in his rush hour traffic and he just got the idea one day. It's like, what if, but walking, what if, yeah, what if I could get up out of this and go over all of this traffic and just watch everything down and be done with it? He later had a dream that night where there was a rocket launch and he kind of like put the two together and the rest is history. And that's how Japan invented the airplane. I mean, the mech. I mean, the idea of the fictional mech. But also, I guess they have one for real now. I saw it, and it's terrifying. I think they use it to crush beer cans. Oh, you're talking about the life-size Gundam that they have that can actually walk now. That well, It can walk now? Yeah, they uh, just released uh, last year. Um, they have like a 50, uh, it's a one-for-one -one replica of the original Mobile Suit Gundam. And what it can do it, is it can take a few steps and then kneel. It can raise his arms. And I think it can turn his torso a little bit. That's remarkable. So baby steps, what we're getting there. We have life-size. Literal Mecca. baby steps. That's how a baby starts. Uh, I went to Japan like five or six years ago, and they had a different mecha of one on one side, one on one scale. It didn't have as much movement, but yeah, I mean, that's so cool. They've been doing it for like ten years. It's fantastic. But yes, they're drifting into this uh, mind meld control drift thing, uh, and we're informed that the deeper the bond, the better we fight. Mm -hmm. Shared trauma is real. I suppose so, but also it makes uh, it makes sense that you've got siblings here because I guess a lot of uh, sets of siblings are super close, and that's like a nice way to put them in a unit and be like, yeah, okay, you two are definitely going to work together. So their mission is to hold the Miracle Mile off Anchorage, but there's a problem. Uh, see, there's also a small fishing boat out there, and the crew here they want to rescue it. But the commander does not want them to rescue the boat. Yeah, of course, this is a numbers game. They've got to sit there and protect the greater good, basically. And of course, you know, you tell children not to do something. Yeah, they're going to do it. You tell uh, officers, I guess, if they're doing the Air Force way, then these are like officers who are piloting this thing. You you tell professional people, they're called Rangers later, I guess. I don't know what their ranks are, how that works, but... Uh, yeah, these can't, these professionals who are in charge of what looks like several billion dollars worth of machinery, they can't be trusted to follow orders. Mm-hmm. They, they save the boat, is the upshot. They, they go out and be like, well, fuck that, we need to save the boat! Yeah, exactly. We gotta save every man, woman, and child that we can. Mm-hmm. And Admirable, I also like, but, yeah. Mm. Not the best use of taxpayer money, but I will say it does make for a great shot because uh, what they were trying to go for in this scene is um, so Del Toro loves uh, art and he was trying to recreate uh, water as sort of like a narrative element all throughout the movie mm. where it's sort of like a raw emotion. And he always liked that famous Japanese painting, uh, I think it's called the, by Hokusha, Hokusai, where you have the yeah. giant... Yeah, Hokusai, it's where it's crashing over the waves. Yeah. It's popularly called the Great Wave, but the actual name of the print is, uh, it's part of a series called, uh, I forget the number, but it's like 51 views of Mount Fuji, and this is just view number 39 of Mount Fuji or something. Indeed. Uh, 
I actually that's actually on my. Oh, you had that. I as have a, note? a below. Well, no, 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 no. I was going to say. I mean, I have the Hokusai or as uh, this note, but I actually have a blow up of that image as my um, shower curtain, basically. <laughs> Just as Hokusai intended. Exactly. I've got my whole bathroom themed in Japan, basically, with the Hokusai painting, nice. and then I've got blue bath maps that mark to watch the waves, and then, of course, since it's Japan, I have. Um, Mario, Super Mario, soap dispenser, and a tube, a green tube to hold my toothbrushes in. Nice. Because you have to have video game references with referencing Japan, obviously. Naturally, yeah. And there is a lot of Japan in this movie, as we'll find out. Uh, One of Mm -hmm. my favorite lines as they're entering the ocean are, there are things you can't fight, acts of God. You see a hurricane coming, you have to get out of the way. But when you're in a Jaeger, suddenly you can fight the hurricane and you can win. Yes, there's a lot of good like one-off quotes like that I quite like. In fact, one of them we'll get to a little bit later is what I think Joe Biden should say when he does his inauguration speech here in a couple days. Fight the hurricane? Fight the hurricane! We can win! That's how he sounds, right? Yes, because he's like angry old man yelling, but no. Get off my lawn! (laughs) That's That's how Joe Biden talks, right? Cut to the fishing vessel who communicate as if they're military for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sir, they're not coming the this of... way. What do we do, sir? And like, I don't know, man. I've seen those shows where they're on a fishing boat and generally they call the captain boss or by his name if he has one. This this captain doesn't have a name except for sir. Yeah, this obviously isn't the biggest catch that they're filming out there right now. It is the deadliest, though. Hey, oh, yes, definitely. Hey, oh, <laughs> that was a joke that I made. Uh, I but guess don't. that doesn't matter now since they're all going to get crushed by this kaiju, unless of some, of course, some sort of giant mind controlled mecha bot shows up. Oh, wait, but it does. Yeah, just then, Save a giant the mind-controlled mechabot shows up and saves the boat, I think. It's not clear whether they survive this encounter. Yeah, and I do like the little nuance, like when it goes to the cuts of the cockpit, like how the they're separated into hemispheres in the cockpit, and so the right hemisphere, and I guess then in favor of the right arm, you know, has a little they should stop. Uh, they saucer should stop. and it has a boat on it. They should yeah. stop trying to explain themselves. It's magic. Shut, shut up. It's fine. <laughs> we did this for plot <laughs> forwarding. Shut up. It's cool. So it looks like that plasma cannon works pretty well, and disobeying that order has borne zero negative consequences for anyone, except that the kaiju is still alive and proceeds to tear the Jaeger's arm off. Uh-oh. Uh, and I guess Indeed. that hurts the pilot's arm, too, because that's a good way to design your machine, such that if part of it gets damaged, you also damage your pilot. Yes, which this reminds me of another great anime, mecha, or mecha anime, Neon Genesis Evangelion, where they're sort of like pain receptors built into the mech that are linked with the pilot for whatever reason because yeah that's that's a great design idea i mean i if feel like you'd want to limit it off, you your arms ripped off limited at some point right because like yeah totally pain is a good thing to feel if it's going to tell you things like hey get your hand the hell off that stove because you're if you keep it there it's going to burn your whole hand right 
But at a certain mm-hmm. point, if it's going to hurt that much where you're out of action, I don't know why they would make the signal that big. Uh, in this case, it's like you're controlling it legit with your mind. So yeah, your arm's going to get hurt if it hurts or it's going to... All right, fine. It's anime bullshit. Who cares? It, it's cool. It's cool and it gives us some stakes because otherwise it's like, oh no, this piece of machinery is going to need repair later and that's your stakes. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of like the use of colors here where you have the pilots all clad in white. They're brothers. They're young. I mean, they're sort of like pure spirits. And then you have the ways, which I guess is sort of like represent, you know, kaiju. It's sort of like the taint, just like the kaiju blue, you know, mm. their blood. And then red representing the life where you have the heart of gypsy danger and it's just glowing red. And then later, you know, after, you know, they're ripped out and he crashes on the shore, you see the red over the stained over the pure white, basically, you know, life basically ripped out, spread out all over the pureness. Because it's so informed by Japan, I was almost looking at the white uniforms thinking that isn't white the the color that represents death generally in uh, and I, I guess traditional Japanese culture. This is coming from a guy who knows very little about it, but has read a book. So totally ignorant, except for maybe one thing. But isn't like that was what I was taken away from it. Like, oh, someone's about to die. <laughs> so. Oh, definitely. Yes, uh, which yes. actually <laughs> does happen because Yancey is torn out of the Jaeger after saying, listen to me, I need to tell you one thing except for. ah." And here's here's the part that I love. This would have been the place. Where a lesser sound designer would have put the Wilhelm scream. They did not put in a Wilhelm scream here. Thank you, sound designers. Thank you. Too much. We've had too much Wilhelm scream. Yes, I I definitely like when, you know, there's actually thought put in. It's like, maybe we shouldn't overuse something that has been used a few thousand times over, and we're pretty sure that that character did not come out of that person. Well, maybe we shouldn't use someone else's signature instead of, like, maybe I should come up with my own thing, because I'm the sound designer, but you know, oh well. Uh, It's a meme, and I don't like it. I'm on record as saying that in a few other episodes. I'm I'm not gonna beat that horse anymore. Back at the... Back at the base, the marshal faces the reality that he's lost both pilots and a whole Jaeger, so not a great day for him. Cut to a father and son doing some metal detecting on an Alaskan beach in winter, in a snowstorm. Yes, I always thought it's like, yeah, if it's like negative 40 outside, I doubt I'm going to be on a beach looking for treasure, you know. My butt's going to be inside where it should be, but you know, plot plot advancement. Well, look, I mean, if you're out there trying to find a whole ship, then you got to get out when people aren't there, because otherwise they'll find it too, and, well, can't have that happen. Mm, Yeah, but I do like how they juxtapose a lot in this film, especially when they start right here about the size of how insignificant we are. We're like bugs to the giant mecha, essentially. Have the little toy robot, and he's been picked up by a normal-sized man, and then... Good God! There is a twenty foot t- five or twenty foot tall. Twenty foot. Why tall. am I saying twenty foot what? tall? No. Okay. No, no. Twenty five the, story. The full twenty five story. The full tall size mecca. man comes up to maybe where the foot, uh, you know, ends. So. Hey, I'm still waking up here. Got it. Got it. Time signatures. <laughs> Time zones. Yeah, even. Crawling out of the wreckage is Raleigh. 
who can barely register where he is or what's going on. Honestly, a really good representation of what going into shock looks like. Then he falls over mm-hmm. and they try to get him first aid. And finally, helicopter shot upwards to reveal this, the absolutely massive scale of the thing that has just landed here and cut to title. Indeed. I mean, it's just the juxtaposition I love because, I mean, just ant crawling out of the skull of this huge, massive thing Mm. on the beach. And just it's like it's almost like God sort I mean, like Godzilla had like um, trying to show like the wrath of like nature, like as something that can't can't be contained. And maybe that's the same for these giant godlike mecha that we have created. Maybe we're not, you know, we can't quite control it just yet. Maybe. Cut to five years later, uh, at a meeting between world leaders and also Marshall, discussing the future of the Jaeger project. Seems like they would rather build a wall. But Marshall is of the opinion that he doesn't need the support of an international collection of nations and their tax base. He can build the giant multi-billion dollar robots by himself! Somehow. Yeah, and it's kind of like foreshadowing, you know, like politicians. Oh, yeah, let's not work together. Let's just build a wall and that'll be, yeah, that that's the end of it. Whatever. Yeah. You know those giant things that can collapse entire cities in an afternoon? Let's build a thing that they can't collapse out of the same material that they're collapsing in every other place. Mm-hmm. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Uh, cut to a construction site where they're building the anti-kaiju wall between Alaska and California. Yeah, and I like how there is homage to, like, the famous photography from, or photographs from the 1930s, 1920s, where they're building the skyscrapers out there, where you have Rosie the Riveter and all that fun Mm. stuff. And they're like, oh, hey, we have, you know, three people died today, but good news, we have three new job openings. Uh, First, though, uh, up on the scaffolding, Raleigh, last seen mind-piloting a giant mega-robot, is now plasma cutting a section of I-beam support for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he has to take a look out onto the Alaskan coast where he once, you know, where was basically top dog in the world, you know, top top of the world, really, basically. And then look how the mighty have fallen. Mm. Now he's just a steel worker scraping by just trying to get rations. Yes, so, yeah, because they're... Uh... They need to work for rations. That's, uh, I guess the... <sighs> well, this is going to be on the nose. Guess this whole crisis hasn't changed the American economy very much. It's people working for rations, and three people died yesterday due to poor working conditions. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. Topical oh. joke. Sorry, guys, it won't happen again. I couldn't. Yeah, just how like the kaiju, the downfall of humanity started in 2020. You know, oh, this is set in 2020, isn't it? Goddamn. Well, no, no, no. When that kaiju monster three ripped out the brother, that whole scene was in 2020. So it's foreshadowing, man. This is what our future is going to be like. 2025. (laughs) That's what it's going to be. Cut to a lunch break where the TV is on and some workers look on in horror at the news that a kaiju broke through the coastal wall in Sydney in less than an hour. Yeah, it's like, hey, we spent months, people died on this, and 
Yeah, it's completely useless. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, you just, uh, I can only imagine if they were building the Great Wall of China back in the day, and then they saw the Mongolians just plow through it yeah. like butter, you know how maybe actually like an happens. hour. Yeah, that actually happened. Mm-hmm. The Mongols became, yep. the, yeah, this is literally the Great Wall. This is the, yep. yeah. So fortunately, the new generation Jaeger was decommissioned only a few days before and was still nearby and in position to defeat the Kaiju and save the day, and also Sydney. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jaeger. Yes, thank you, Australia. Thanks, Australia. You, you guys really are awesome. We see a lot of like Australian like military, which is kind of nice that it's not the same cities being destroyed like in every disaster film. That's true. London, New York, Tokyo. You know, those are your major ones. But Sydney, you rarely see. You know, I think maybe Independence Day, and I can't really think of anything I else. Can't at think the of anything else. Yeah, and even in Independence Day, it was one scene of it getting blown up. Yeah, which quintessential shot of the opera house. True. Uh, Back to Raleigh and the marshal arrives in a helicopter to have a conversation. Raleigh is reluctant to let anyone else into his head again due to the crazy trauma he experienced by being connected to a guy as he died in excruciating pain. Okay, so Trevor, is this guy a Jesus? Because I think he might be a Jesus... Did he go he through the death? The Did he throw through the death and he's still around for some reason? Is he a Jesus? No, not quite. I haven't seen him turn any wine into water quite yet, but perhaps that's later in the film. Yeah, famously what Jesus did, turned perfectly good wine into water. Mm-hmm. It always bothered me. I mean, Family Guy touched upon this in the head because, you know, that's, you know, the fantastic show. And it's like, Jesus must have been wasted the all the time. If the blood of Christ is <laughs> The blood is, of Christ is, is 14% content. alcohol. Good Lord. I know. That's crazy. That guy can't drive. But in answer to Riley's <laughs> unwillingness to pilot a Jaeger again, Marshall makes a compelling argument. Maybe Riley does want to pilot a Jaeger again after all. I mean, it's only the, you know, fate of the world, you know, the apocalypse. I, I get yeah, you, sure. but you, you've just come to a guy and being like, so you don't want to pilot anymore? Nah, don't want to pilot anymore. Come on. All right. Yeah, pretty much. It's like the Fuzz being like, come on. He doesn't yeah, need okay. a whole lot of convincing. Yeah, Raleigh I agrees, mean, and they fly to Hong Kong, a place called the Shatter Dome. I mean, the Thunder Dome. I mean, the Shatter Dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me back. They tried to do a lot of shots that seem similar to like NASA and sort of like shipbuilding yards where they have like intricate work, and it's mm. really well done. I quite like it on the inside, and they've done a lot of theme or color work with the uh, orange, sort of amber, to give it sort of like a warmth mm. sort of type. Thing. Very nice warm color, uh, warm light in here for sure. Uh, here we also meet a- Makomori who uh, imagined Raleigh differently, a thing she says in Japanese, but turns out that Raleigh also speaks Japanese badly. Yeah, much better than me, but yeah, that, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And here they are, <sighs> are the bickering scientists. We will see a lot of them later, but their introduction has got me concerned that they are going to be the token comic relief characters. Yeah, a little bit. You have two um, over, uh, basically, um, 
Am I going to sneeze? No, I'm not going to sneeze. Okay. Yeah, you have the overdone, basically, tropes of being like the two types of nerds. You have the guy who's by the numbers book, and then you have the crazy fanboy who's got the tattoos, and he's like... Oh, he really wants to see Kaiju alive, because he's a Kaiju fan man, and, uh, you know, Raleigh assures him, no, you really don't want to see one up close. Yeah, exactly. And he's got the tattoos all over his body, and he's in the by the books guy. It's like, dude, you're just a groupie. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Let's just get on with our work. Yeah. Turns out they're not an army anymore. They're the resistance. Welcome to the Technodrome. And one thing I've noticed, especially right here, this actually has a bunch of parallels to a lot of sporting movies. And like you have the the rookie coming back after he, you know, he botched it on his last major game and now he's back in the stadium and you see these giant mechs and their pilots which are kind of like the star athletes oh, basically. Oh god, and they even tell us in the intro that they're like like movie stars or rock stars and they go on the TV shows cuz they're like, "Oh, you're right. the Jaeger pilots who saved us all." Yeah, and then we get our introduction, you know, like to the Chinese team, which they're using red and typhoon. Mm-hmm, and it's got three arms. Yep, typhoon, of course, Fantastic. named for a hurricane if it happens uh, over in the Pacific and not over in the Atlantic, because the same type of storm, different places, different names. Mm-hmm. Plus, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese one is one of four Jaegers left. Uh, one of them is the Crimson Typhoon, which is super high tech, and they go like, "Oh, it's all titanium, and it's got this many cool things." Oh my God, the tech specs! Then they get to the Russian T ninety, uh, one of the first generations now piloted by these guys, big, heavy, tough, and brutal. And uh, Striker Eureka, we saw them on the Australian news show earlier. Super fast, and it's the most powerful and most advanced because Australia. Go go Aust- well, I, I have a running joke on the show where I go go America, but now go Australia. Indeed, go Australia, land of didgeridoos, land of fosters. evidently giant, crazy, high tech mechas. Mm-hmm. Where everything tries to kill you, including our technology, <laughs> especially the copy machine. Uh, and I do like quite the design of some of these mechs and how they try to per, uh, basically characterize the countries that they're from. Like the Russian, like I was listening to the commentary, and apparently the design Diving helmet. was influenced from a T-90 battle tank, but also from a cooling tower from Chernobyl, basically. Oh, neat. Yeah, because I was looking at the helmet thinking like old school diving bell. Mm-hmm. Which also, I guess, but yeah, I mean, this is where we say there's not a lot of flags, but there's definitely like countries being represented in somewhat stereotypical ways, though I guess it's, you know, uh, China being the super high tech crazy place is a bit of a newer stereotype, uh, the, you know. But the, the yeah, Russians, yeah, of course, like, it's got to be red. Yeah, of yeah. course, of course. And the Russians are all and the Russians got to have something iron. Yeah, it's iron, and they re and they just like kind of like their military. They repurpose old technology and keep on using it. So it's one of the older ones, and it looks like it came out from the Cold War, and it's a like straight gray and everything, all utilitarian. But there's a problem it, because Raleigh doesn't know the plan yet. And it turns out the plan is strap a nuke to one of the fast ones, have the other three run interference, and then blast the breach closed. Well, well, wait a second, Marshall, how did you get a nuke? Riley asks before the audience gets to. The answer, of course, is that Russians are magic. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Look at those Russians have... over there. They can do they can get nuclear weapons be- because they're Russians, I think. Is that what we're saying, movie? Okay. Yeah, they'll just contact Borat or whoever, basically, and magic, you know, nukes just everywhere because it's like a ready supply. It's like another currency they have over yeah, there. Yeah, just right like, here. you know, every everybody gets uh, their first nuclear warhead about the same time as they get their first bicycle. Cut to the science lab where only one guy is furiously writing equations on a blackboard and one is dissecting kaiju parts. I had a quick exactly. I had a quick look at that blackboard. You're also a bit of a math guy. Uh that that doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense. I think he just keeps multiplying e by a bunch of integrals. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a yeah, it didn't make much sense when I initially looked at it and I just kind of think he's sort of like a beautiful mind sort of moment where it's his own like internal dialogue. He's just sprouting nonsense on the board. Makes sense to him, but nobody else. Sure. Sure. Except that anyway, I, I tried to do some math to it and I was like, these aren't even memes. These are people who looked through a math textbook and went that one, right? That one there. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. And I do like the nice little dialogue where there's so, such a uh, sort of uh, difference between those two scientists oh, and train just, of thought that they yeah. hated each other. And there's even a dotted line in the middle of the floor, and the guy throws the like entrails over and touches the other side, and the other guy's like, mm, yeah. bastard, I just cleaned this floor. How dare you? Yeah, they are the comic relief, and that's disappointing almost. But I had a – but yeah, uh, it's, what's hilarious to me about the blackboard is uh, – we learn very quickly that what he's describing is a simple exponential curve. It's like, well, the last week it was three, and now it's two, and next time it will be even faster. We're like, yeah, so that's exponentiation. Chill out. You don't need all of that. to. Just... Anyway, they wanted some math yep. on a board to make them look smart. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about, you know, heavy-duty calculus, cosine, theta, tra- tra- yeah, tangent, what, no. It's just, yeah, it's just exponential growth, I didn't whatever. see a single triangle on there. Why has he got a sign? No circles, none. So it turns out that the kaiju fanboy science man wants to, wants to mind meld, I mean drift with the kaiju brain, uh, because they got a, a partial damaged kaiju brain right there. Everyone agrees that this would be a dumb and stupid and reckless idea, so I fully expect to see him dead due to trying this in the next scene or two. Of course, because, you know, trying to, you know, get inside a dead, you know, dead organism, that's always gone well. Uh Uh-huh. So, cut Uh. to Mako and Raleigh inspecting Gypsy Danger, the fourth Jaeger, and the same one that Raleigh piloted with Yancey earlier in the film, I think. Yep, same exact mech, except this time the core has been updated from a single reactor to nuclear. two reactors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nuclear. It's and side nuclear. note, I my computer I've built, I actually still have to this day. I've kind of modeled it after Gypsy Danger, at least the core. So oh, it's a sort of spherical kind of thing. It has a giant fan blade in the middle and it glows red. And I do, and the name of it is Gypsy Danger, actually. And it's got the silver and gray, just like this robot. Fantastic. Where did you even get the plutonium? Or should I ask? Russians. Magic. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, but now it's even better. And later, in Raleigh's quarters, turns out that Mako wants to be a Jaeger pilot more than anything, but she's not a candidate for co-piloting with Raleigh because reasons. Yes, and those reasons come in the handsome Idris Elba, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. And being the overprotective father type. Oh, we don't learn that just yet. Uh, First, uh, he asks Namako, Raleigh asks Mako, hey, what do you think about my fighting style? And she says exactly what she thinks. Uh, You take risks and you put your crew in danger. You're predictable and you're not the right man for this job. And to his credit, he doesn't argue uh, at this point, but he says that he's trying to deal with the consequences of his decisions. Which I guess he's saying, yeah, I know I was before, but let's be clear, I understand where I fucked up and I'm intending to do differently this time. At least this was my reading of it. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to own up to his mistakes, move forward, and hopefully he can deal with it a little bit better. But yeah, there's still some baggage he's trying to sort through. Oh, you mean that dude who died while connected directly to his brain? Yeah, it might have a little... Why isn't he over that by now? It's only been five years. Yeah, it's only his brother, you know, he probably grew up with, you know, for 18 years as a kid. Who knows? They grew up together so long that by the time they they were growing up as kids together, they weren't kids anymore. Then they continued to grow up together, because that's what happens with life. Except now that he's dead, Mm -hmm. he can't do that anymore. He must feel really sad about that. Uh, Mako's room. Mako Mako. Is it Mako? I keep forgetting how they pronounce it in the movie. Well, I think both. I think they both say it, because, I mean, you have the British actors, and you have some of the Americans, and I think I hear Mako and Mako, but... Yeah, fair. I don't know. Yeah. Mako's room is directly across from his, which gives her a clear view of him as he takes his shirt off. Uh, and I think she's kind of into him. Yeah. Got to see those scars, too, from uh, when he got out of the kaiju. Yeah, when he got or, I mean, not, uh, Yeah, out of the kaiju. Out of the mecha, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, he got zapped in, the, that in the left arm, that whole thing, right? Because they tore the left arm off of the off of the Jaeger. Yeah, and it's probably got some sort of electrodes or something into the suit of armor, basically. So yeah, when that did happen, probably fried whatever pain receptors or nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, wizardry, electronic wizardry that was in the arm. In a tiny little scenelet, speaking to the marshal, we see Mako really wants to pilot the Jaeger because vengeance. Is she a Moby Dick? Because I think she might be a Moby Dick. Well, one thing I've learned from personal experience is you never call a lady a whale, but, uh, or references to a whale. I found out the hard way, but anyway. Look at her. She's clearly a Moby Dick. She's out for vengeance against a force of nature. I guess an alien though now. Does that still count? It's in the ocean. It's a a giant monster in the ocean and she wants to go stab at the heart of hell. Yep, she does. And I I do agree with your analogy. Yeah, she is a Moby Dick. Cut to the school cafeteria, I mean the mess hall, where the Australians invite Raleigh to eat with them. Uh, Or, well, the old one does. The young one isn't terribly impressed with Raleigh and spends the entire scene telling him so. Yeah, and this is quintessential, another sports parallel. You know, you have the rookie coming in, he's sitting down, all the other cool kids, you know, basically are like, who the hell is this guy? Can we trust him? But, of course, the star athlete doesn't trust him either, but the veteran guy is like, okay, this is making him feel comfortable. Okay, so I was not getting that this was a sports movie, and now I'm really disappointed that I've been enjoying a sports movie, because I hate sports movies. 
Well, I mean, it's not a sports movie. It's a movie, sports movie. But, I mean, they're... It's, you're, you're exactly <laughs> correct. It's a sports movie. And I'm disappointed with myself for letting this sneak into my brain and making me enjoy a sports movie. So I guess uh, now we cut to stick fighting training where Raleigh is taking his potential co-pilots for a trial run. I guess uh, fighting style compatibility is pretty important given that they need to fight in the same bot as part of the same brain together, what with the meshing. Indeed, and I like how basically she, again, calls him out on his skills and be like, duh, you could have done that in two moves. We, You've been holding back, and you know... I love the fact that it's just not afraid to speak the mind and just call people out. Well, she doesn't offer it, he asks, because he looks at her and goes like, every time I have knocked one of these fuckers on the floor, you have looked at me with this little mm, motion, and I, as if you're disapproving, I don't understand. What are you disapproving of? And she's like, nah, it's because you suck ass, buddy. I could have beat him like two moves earlier. Yeah? Well, how about you get in here with me? The marshal... Well, he's not super happy about this until he's poked in the ego slightly. Yeah, and we see that they're actually going back to back pretty well and didn't even make it to four rounds. But, I mean, they got stopped interruptly by the marshal. Mm -hmm. Insert overprotective stereotype, you know, a father figure. Oh, yeah, these two are super compatible, but the marshal has already made up his mind and it's not Mako. Uh, speaking at their rooms, uh, Raleigh is of the opinion that, fuck the marshal, we do what we want! Whereas Mako has, again, one of my favorite lines, it's not obedience, Mr. Beckett, it's respect. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, later, Good in the boy. elevator, Marshall has a nosebleed and takes another of those pills he's been popping out of that little Altoids tin since the beginning, uh, while the news that a new kaiju has been rampaging around Sydney again. Cut again to the to Newt, the kaiju brain experiment guy, uh, experimenting with the kaiju brain, as he does, and he's decided to drift with it against orders, risking his life in the process. This guy, by the way, does remind me a lot of Rick Moranis in those old 80s movies about, like, what was it, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, yeah. He's a, he's now, a, now that you say that, I re- yeah, I see that. I think I, I like both of them, and I mean that comparison in the nicest and most uh, flattering possible way because I really like Rick Moranis. Uh, later, as Mako is looking out of her peephole, Raleigh arrives and almost knocks on the door, but then decides not to do that and leaves. Instead, Marshall arrives and bows in a real aggressive way, like stares straight at her the whole time he's bowing. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah, that kind of like, uh... Like, is he gonna fight her? Crawled up. Yeah. It looks like he wants to fight her. But then he comes in, presents her with a red shoe, and tells her to get ready. I guess he changed his mind about her piloting the thing, because cut to Raleigh, setting up for the trial run with his new co-pilot, drumroll, Mako. Mm-hmm. And of course, the red shoe symbolizing life again. The color red, I think, symbolizes life in this quite a bit. But also, I wonder if there's any parallel to... There's no place like home. There's no place like if there home. isn't. No, it's not a ruby red slipper. I don't know. I mean, there are definitely going into the other world scenes in here, but I don't know if the red shoe is the thing that gets you out. Like, I don't know if it fulfills the same function. I think in this case, it's doing a different thing than what the Alice and not the Alice in Wonderland, the the other one. You know, those two. The Wizard of that's Oz. That's the two of them. Those are the only two. 
Uh, they start up the test mode, and only now is Mako informed that she shouldn't chase the rabbit. Stay in the drift. Mm-hmm. Which now we have the Alice in Wonderland uh, reference. Stay yeah. in the drift. The drift is silence. I like that a lot because it's representing the drift as like a Zen state, which is. I think that's an anime. It's like a, no, you can't fight properly if you're thinking about other stuff. You have to stay in the moment. You have to be silent and still in your mind. And outside, you can be a super violent badass. Yeah, um, there is an anime. I quite, well, I mean, it's referencing quite a bunch of anime, but one of my favorites, Cowboy Bebop, actually, they show, let's see, the, the lead actor or the lead protagonist, Spike, Ha, um, is a martial arts guy, and he learned a special form. That's I forget the exact name, but Bruce Lee uh, devised it. And this guy, this yeah, that, and he's trying to this young punk. He's trying to steal this guy's wallet. The protagonist, you know, f- falls on his ass every time. He's like, "You have to teach me that." And he's saying that you have to be still. Mm. You have to be like water. You yeah. know, you have to just let it glide over you and not think mm-hmm. and just be in the moment How very zen Which kind of yeah what they're showing here well, that's yeah. very zen what's not very zen is interrupting the marshal with news that science man has drifted with the kaiju yeah a- which uh of course we, we this is a great idea because you know when you were drifting and your brother got his arm ripped off but no rip, you know drifting with a dead thing that's already you know dead i can only imagine the weird pain that must be going through and mm-hmm. A visibly rattled Ugh. newt informs us that the kaiju are not acting on animalistic instinct, but on orders. See, these uh, alien masters are colonists who move into worlds, destroy everybody who's there, and then, you know, set up a, set up a little McMansion there. And down the road, they have a little mall, and, you know, while, while we're here, we should probably set up a highway to, you know, so that we can get from here to that other place where we killed all of the people and then took all of their land. The mar- yeah, it's exactly the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? The Vogans are going to come through. They need a thorough pass through the Milky Way right through that here. That is exactly and, yeah. the reference I was making, and to no other real-world thing. <laughs> the Marshal needs more information and needs Newt to do it again, but he can't because he doesn't have a kaiju brain lying around. Wait, do they do they have a kaiju brain lying around? Well, they don't. Well, I guess they mean a live one. Well, they don't have one as it happens, but they do yeah, know no. where to find one. See, they made a deal with this guy where they'd be like, you give us whatever we want and we'll give you all of the rights to all the kaiju we kill. We'll sell you whatever we want. And, uh, you know, the last days of war, I guess. You got to make some unsavory deals sometimes. And I, get, I really like the world building here. Like, of course, someone's going to figure out how mm-hmm. to profit from this. Why wouldn't they? Right. Let's go find that dead kaiju. They got to be cleaned up anyway. And as we know, convincing the Chinese market that powdered bits of whatever animal cure impotence is a real good way to make that animal extinct. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what they're trying to get rid do. of the, do yeah. the kaiju. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, all the little details that they go into the, the world building is absolutely fantastic, and it's plausible. That's what I like about you know his style of directing. It's just, well, everyone yeah, is every little everyone thing. is motivated by what they want. The people who are scavenging are like, well, here's what I'm able to do, and here's what I want, and here's how I'm going to get by. And the politicians are also sort of trying to do their thing, and the Jaeger guys are also trying to do their thing. 
And uh, I, I think everyone's motivations, even if they're not clear to us, are clear to them, and their actions are just happening in the world, and I love that. Back at the robot, Mako, Mako is uh, starting to have some difficulties. I think she might be chasing the rabbit. Yeah, and I love the transition that they did where they go into her memory where you see the background of the inside of the mech and then it just fades mm. softly to the black and, you know, you just see the snow coming down. They didn't overpopulate, just very simple and a very good transition. I had this I noted like. as samurai snow. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turns out that she was a little girl who survived a kaiju attack on uh, a Japanese city. I don't know which one. And, uh, uh-oh, here's the kaiju now in her memories, and she's just a little girl. And what's she going to do? And here's the thing. A lot of disaster movies try to humanize the monster attacks by showing us, like, a random dude going, Oh, no! It's Kojira! But, like, we've never seen this guy before. He's just, like, a man over there, and we're like, yeah, okay, he kills people. That sucks, and that sucks for this guy who yelled. But this is, like, a protagonist who is being threatened here. And even though we know she survives, how could she not? It still hurts on a base level because we're watching her as a little girl and knowing, like, oh, no, what's she going through? Oh, poor poor Mako, please. Oh, no. Yeah, and uh, I just like the way they shot this, too, Beautiful. because Beautiful. they wanted you to feel her emotions as she's doing that. In fact, when I was watching the commentary from the director, they actually said they put hydraulics into the floor on this set just to basically get the girl to even feel like something is walking towards her and give her that extra level of fear and Oh, man, I can only imagine if I were eight, mm. the floor shaking, and I have this giant thing on the screen. Yeah, I... Anytime I'd you can do practical less. feedback for an actor, you should. Because even for an adult seasoned actor, reacting with fear to a tennis ball on a stick is not easy. And I maintain it has never worked. But actually getting a reaction from, like, the machine jerked randomly and they weren't expecting it that's always going to look better. <laughs> but as she gets increasingly fearful in her memory, she starts in real life, subconsciously powering up the Jaeger's plasma cannon and aiming it at the memory of the Kaiju. But also that means at her colleagues in the base. Mm-hmm. I loved this and- section so much. Yeah. I-, I was kind of a bit disappointed where, or, surprised how everyone's kind of cool at first they're like oh it's just a plasma cannon it's firing up they just sort of we're fine i here. love how the russians are like all right let's move <laughs> what yeah like barely inconvenienced they're sitting there going that means i have to walk 20 feet to my left doesn't it all right mm-hmm. the old mary seasoned uh couple basically it's like oh yeah it's Freaking kids, gonna make me walk. Mm. Whatever. Specifically, the intercutting between this real world panic that ensues after the original sort of like, oh, this is weird, and the childhood memory is what I love, right? 
it, 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 the cuts between her as a child running away and her present self actually with the power to fight back, but knowing somewhere in her mind that it won't bring her family back and her fear and rage nearly destroying the people around her, just absolutely stunning work. I was legitimately fearful for her and for the people around her. Yeah, it's quite a nice duality they had there mm. with that, you know, the past and the present. Yeah. Past and present, but also legitimately how our past experiences inform our present actions and how yes. if we let the past control us, some seriously bad shit can happen, which I think is a big theme going through this. Big theme. Cut to the... So anyway, everything's fine. Uh, the control room manages to cut the power to the Jaeger. The mood darkens a little bit, and they take in what's happened. Cut to a place in Hong and Kong called the Bone Slums. Yeah, which is right next, you know, to the entrail yards. and yeah, 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 that's next to Kowloon. I'm sure that's a borough, yeah. Yeah, first you got Kowloon, and then behind the really fancy shops, you've got the Bone Slums. Who else is going to work in the fancy boutiques? I can only imagine realtors trying to sell, like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a very lovely area. It's called the Bone Slums. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't worry about that hole it's in like, the top of it. It's where the dragons pass through. Yeah, does it have good schools, the the, the Bone Slums? And what about a park, you know? I want to go walking in the Bone well, Slums. See, I've been thinking about buying a cottage in the Fields of Despair. Yes, yes. Quite picturesque, especially in the autumn with the foliage. Oh, it's beautiful. I love the foliage. After finding the, uh, this place in a Chinese medicine shop, uh, he's shown to the back room of the medicine shop where there's a bunch of kaiju specimens, which sincerely excites Newt as the sciencey, uh, as the sciencey man, where a sincerely unimpressed Hannibal Chow greets him. See, he, uh, yes, enter Hellboy. Name. Yeah, it's uh, Ron Perlman himself in the flesh. Uh, he took his name from his favorite historical figure and his second favorite Szechuan restaurant in Brooklyn. I mm -hmm. love that. And I like, like, the character design, like, because uh, another tidbit I learned from the commentary is that uh, they spent a month going over his wardrobe oh, yeah. for Hannibal Chow to make him as outlandish and crazy as he could be. And apparently they spent, during that month, going over shoe designs. Because those shoes are absolutely crazy with the gold armor on it, clinks when he walks. I mean, oh man. It's quite the design, I have to say, especially since the whole aesthetic up till this point has been like abject poverty, right? People wearing rags, gray and brown are the order of the day. I don't, I don't think I've seen anybody wearing a color at all. Except, I guess Mako's hair has a bit of blue in it, but otherwise nobody's wearing a color, right? Which, yeah, the blue in her hair kind of reminds me a little bit of um, how her past is tainted by the kaiju, because, you know, the kaiju blew, and she kind of keeps it as a memento, oh, I, I think, subconsciously. That. That's a good note. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that at all. I just thought it looked really cool and kind of like Ramona Flowers from that other movie that I like. Mm -hmm. uh, inside the marshal's office, and Mako, on the verge of tears, requests permission to be dismissed as she is told that, uh, yeah, she's not going back in the... She's not going back. Raleigh, having just been inside Mako's memories, has suddenly quite clear insight into why the marshal doesn't want Mako to co-pilot with him. 
See, he's the one who saved her, and he seems to have become her surrogate father. Yes, and I quite like that scene where they're showing him, you know, getting out of the uh, the Mecca, because right then and there, it's almost like the storybook, you know, children's tale where you have the princess, and she's looking up at the shining knight, basically, that saved her, you know, and you see the warmth of the sun radiating behind, you know, Idris's character, Pentecost, and, you know, it's like... And this is... A scene from the perspective of a little girl. And of course she's going to understand reality based on, among other things, the kind of media she's been aware of. And one of those things is probably the, you know, uh, people being saved by either the virtuous samurai or the virtuous knight or whatever the figure might be in the stories. I think every culture has something like that. Someone in trouble, the shining knight comes over and goes, aha, I will rescue you. And then does. And then everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. As the marshal leaves now sort of just done with this conversation, Raleigh chases him and physically turns him around by grabbing his arm. And here I, Drisalba is the fucking best. One, don't you ever touch me again. Two, don't you ever touch me again. Now you have no idea who the hell I am or where I've come from, and I'm not about to tell you my whole life story. All I need you to be, uh, all I need to be to you and everybody on this dome is a fixed point. The last man standing. I do not need your sympathy or your admiration. All I need is your compliance and your fighting skills. And if you can't get me, and if I can't get them, then you can go back to the wall I found you crawling on. Do I make myself clear? Holy fuck, this man! Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, how do you respond to you that? Don't. That is ju- that is an officer being an officer. I felt like saluting. And he even does the thing at the end where he sort of goes like, do I make myself clear? And then sort of turns his head and points at his ear where a very emotional and shaken Raleigh sort of goes, yes, sir. Good. And he goes to the elevator and stands there and stares at him and the elevator doors close. It is fucking boss. This guy's so good. Mm-hmm. I would follow that man into hell. Yeah, I would too. Though apparently he wasn't really well-liked in the office when he was managing the Scranton branch for a little bit. But that's a different topic for a different show. I don't know what that reference is to. I think I I feel the need Uh, to add something to a list. uh, There is a uh, very popular sitcom here called The Office, based upon the British sitcom The Office. And it went on for maybe like eight or nine seasons here. Yeah, lasted... Very popular, and Idris Elba was on there for a while as an interim uh, manager of that branch. And his character is, let's just say, not not well-liked, very stern, kind of similar to here in Pacific Rim, Mm. but he only lasted maybe about four or five episodes. Yeah, I haven't seen Idris Elba in a lot of stuff, but every time I do see him, I'm like, man, he's very good. Yeah, I would love to see him as the next James Bond, but I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see. Back at the school cafeteria, I mean mess hall, Raleigh and Mako arrive to silence due to all of that ju- Hey, you remember that time five minutes ago where we just tried to kill you? Hey, how's the potatoes today? 
we'll we'll just go eat over there in the loading bay. Cool, cool. Later. So they eat uh, while at Gypsy Danger's loading bay while she's being repaired. They have a conversation about how it's difficult to let someone in after you've lost someone that's close to you. I, once again, love that the relationship that ended early on in the thing that led to Raleigh being distant was not between him and a wife or girlfriend or lover of some kind. It was between him and his brother, and that loss is the thing that's making it difficult for him to open up friend-wise or romantically to anybody, including Mako, who's clearly into him. And I think he's also into her, and they're, like, super compatible, and they know it. But I, that could have been so different if they'd have been like, well, I lost my wife in the first one, and now I can't trust again, except for the love of a good woman is going to cure me for my thing. But here they actually recognize that this stuff is complicated and romantic stuff isn't often its own little bubble somewhere. It, it exists as a whole experience and the loss of any kind can really mess with your ability to connect with people. Yes, yes. I f- I, I'm quite happy that in this movie there's not actually a lot of like, oh, I'm doing this for romance, you know, that type of thing, and I need a big strong man to save me or whatever. I mean, they're both strong, independent people, but they have to rely and trust upon one another and have a mutual admiration that they can get the job done. And I like the scene where they're eating lunch, mm. you know, in front of Gypsy Danger as they're working on the core, the heart of the machine, and while they're working on the core of this machine, its heart, they are basically expressing what's in their hearts, their desires, and they're kind of like bonding, you know? It's, they're working on the heart, and at the same time, they're working on their own heart. It's kind of beautiful. But it's also even, when's the last time you saw her heart? And he goes like, oh, geez, a long time ago. And again, opening up his heart and its heart, it's, it's quite a nice little thing. But also, what's really sweet is how they're connecting through this thing that they're doing and this work that they're engaged in. Because I think that's a lot of how real connection happens, right? People connect over a hobby and then learn to connect through that to one another, and then maybe later they get more direct connection to one another. But I don't know of too many people who sort of like, they show up to a to a place that Hollywood has told them, and it's like at a, at a ball or something, and they look across the room and they go, that one, that human right there, that's the one I want. And the other person also points at them and says the same thing. I don't think that happens. I think people engage in a hobby together, in this case, you know, saving the world, fighting in giant mechas. And uh, through that, they'd be like, oh, actually, we also really enjoy each other's company and kind of want to bone down now. So let's do that. Mm-hmm. It feels real. It feels genuine. It feels sincere in a way that those weird old Hollywood films that were like, I love you, darling. Why? Well, because the script told me to. Exactly. It's not, you know, fate or predetermined. I mean, that has realism, you know, and there is a mutual shared interest. It's not like people throwing at a dartboard like, okay, this person going to end up with this person, you know. Back in the control room, GLaDOS informs us that there's a double event in the breach. Oh, no. Yeah, which 
slight digression, Gladys, actually, one of the first things that struck me about the trailer for this movie is they almost had it identical to Gladys in uh, Portal, but when the movie came out, they altered the voice a little bit, and I think there might have been some behind-the-scenes sort of legal action maybe taken, or a threat, but you need to change this, you know? Either that, or the filmmakers decided, hey, you know what would be fun is if we didn't remind people of that hugely popular game they played last year while watching our film. We don't want to be tied down to the idea. We don't want people hearing literally just the computer doing plot forwarding stuff and telling them what's happening and thinking, oh, the computer must be evil. Spoilers for Portal and Portal 2. GLaDOS is not a nice lady. Computer. AI lady. Mm-hmm. Makes a great potato, though. Evidently. <laughs> and you know what? We've so, had yes, two categories a for lot yep. of compelling human drama recently, and I think this battle couldn't come at a nicer time for a CG Mecha Godzilla battle. Indeed, also that, two categories. Also, for... that seems like far too few helicopters to haul a giant robot. Yeah, the physics bother me, but you got to turn it off every once in a while. I mean, they try and make it real, but at some point. It's like, yeah, it's going to take how I'm going to sitting there trying to do the math of how many Chinook helicopters. Okay, this is the maximum payload. And yeah, it just doesn't work out. Plot device. Convenient. It's fine. Probably the Russians did it. It's fine. I'm sure it's fine. Meanwhile, back at the black market, Hannibal, Chow and Newt have a discussion about how much a kaiju brain would be. Uh, Hannibal is reluctant because it's a lot of work and he's not even sure he can do it. To get out the brain intact, but they have a secondary brain, and yada yada yada, and Newt, ignoring orders from the marshal to not trust this guy, trusts him anyway, and tells him the whole plan, because I guess he senses a kindred spirit or something, and, or, he just doesn't know when to shut up. Come to think of it, why did the marshal send the scientist man alone, instead of, like, with at one other person, maybe? In case something goes sideways? Yeah, and this kind of reminds me a little bit that's uh, always sunny in Philadelphia with Charlie Day, the actor, the little scientist, you know, who's talking with Hannibal Chow. He's got a meme out there where he's on a board where he's scribbling everything and it's like a beautiful mind. Oh. And I wish they kind of did that in this movie because seen, at some point, like right here, been I perfect. haven't seen the show, but I think I've seen the image of him with like the red string going between the things. And he's like the conspiracy nut person going like, look, it's all connected. Exactly. And that would have been lovely to see something like that or homage to that, because I think that was right around the same time period that episode came out that this movie was coming out. That would have been icing on the cake, but alas, nah. But no time for that. It's intercut time, and Crimson Tide gets a scent of flying sideways by a giant kaiju, and then they fight for a bit and things start going badly for Team Jaeger. So the Australians decide to make a substitution. I mean, defy orders and get into the fight as the crew of Crimson and Tide die horribly, and the entire hull of the T-90 also gets melted, and they're torn apart and drowned in the bay. Yeah, Oops. I mean, that was violent. I mean, the head is bitten off the Chinese uh, mech while they're trying to do their, what, what, what what's their special technique, triple typhoon? Or yeah, you see they're triplets, or... and they got three arms, and that's how that works. And uh, instead of being able to take apart the kaiju, the kaiju instead 
Uh, well, one of them is like a gorilla kaiju, and he takes apart the thing like a gorilla does. And then the other one has like acid breath, and he melts them. Yeah, and during this, I've really noticed it as well as the beginning of the movie is more to Del Toro's directing style. He wanted to make sure that this world was like lived in a brief then, but like you're actually watching this as if you were there. So there's wave, there's water getting on the lens, mm. you know, there's stuff being obstructed. It's not like perfect, beautiful, perfect, clear. It makes you feel like you're there in the moment, which I quite like, and I don't see a lot. In many action films or anything like that, it's always perfect. Really? There's unobstructed views. It's like ever since yeah. the Bourne films, isn't the whole style like completely confused and you're not sure who's doing what and they're all wearing the same thing and they do, you know, 500 millisecond cuts at maximum and then later like somebody's on the floor now. Because that's a lot of what I see in modern action stuff. Like, classic action stuff is all sort of like, okay, we're just going to roll the camera for a 10-minute take and you better get it right. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But now it's kind of, yeah, it's all like shaky cam footage and uh, hopefully people don't get queasy when they watch it, you know, when they get motion sickness. I don't like that style as much personally, but I'm also a fan of fighting anyway, like as a sport. So I like watching the cool character interplay. What I like here is that they are allowing the fighters effectively in the mechs or whatever to express their personality somewhat, though I did feel like the Chinese guys were just presented as like, these are the total big badass Chinese high-tech awesome people, and then they're they're a wharf. They just like, here's the big tough guy whose job is to get beaten up to show us how tough the other thing is. Yeah, definitely, definitely see that how they're like the they have their own personalities, and they did try and convey that through like how their fighting styles. But yeah, the Russians, the Chinese, the big badasses, the star players on the mm-hmm. bench, basically we're told just we're told how completely. good they are, and then we're shown that they're not that good. Mm-hmm. But in come the Australians to save the day, and I got that. Stryamite. I like that rocket Stry-a. just par- uh, pumping up. Yeah, striker. Yeah, striker. So, yeah, doing my best worst Australian accent. Stryas striker. Stryla striker. Striker. Yeah. Sorry, Australia. I'm trying very hard, and I love you guys. But yeah, the fancy new Australian mech is the super new awesome high-tech extra one, and it is about to launch its anti-kaiju missiles at the kaiju, but one of the kaiju emits an EMT pulse, which knocks out the Jaeger's power and also all of the electricity in Hong Kong. Oops. <laughs> Oops, yeah, I should have thought about that. Oh no, what if, they, what if our power supply goes down? I uh, see, here's the thing, Gypsy Danger is not a digital system, it's an analog system. And as we all know, analog is better than digital. Because we have to reboot the computer. Even though I know there's, like, we go inside the cockpit and we see that there's digital systems out there, but, you know, whatever. It's, it's, It's analog. Don't you see these switches? I know, we just need some vacuum tubes and, you know, a CRT here and there. Oh yeah, good, naturally. Right? Those are all, uh, it's it's done with tubes and, and cogs and sprockets. Mmm, sprockets. It's what's good for you. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, Newt and the black market uh, organ sellers 
They need to get to the kaiju bunkers. Well, Hannibal does. Newt is going to a public refuge, which looks honestly kind of rickety, as uh, the crowd all rushes in, and then silence descends on the once bustling, but now worried crowd inside. That was a fun scene. That I was worried. Yes. Especially how it's like, oh, I'm fine. You? You gotta fit for yourself. In fact, they're probably looking for you, you idiot. So I don't want anything to do with you. Fed for yourself. And right there, at our character's lowest points, is the end of part one of One for Paul's review of Pacific Rim. Join us again next week for part two. Trevor, thank you for joining me on this part one. No problem. Glad to be here. Looking forward to part two. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, guys. Kai juice. Mm, you bastard. I just cleaned this floor. How dare you? <laughs>